welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. It is just a, a joy to see all of you guys here uh, this morning. I'm glad you could be with us if you're here in person or, or you're one of the uh, four people online. It's a great day to be here. We got cookies. Um, and so if you um, have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you can turn to J- Daniel t- chapter 3. Also wanted to let you know if you haven't grabbed one, we have our discipleship guide that we put together to help us on where we're at through this series. Today's Daniel chapter 3, week 3. We also have these scripture journals from Crossway, which is just a great way to kind of study God's word afresh. Um, And uh, really, our hope is just to get God's word and God's truth in your hands so it can get into your heart and into your lives. Uh, And so if you are an elementary school kid or you just want to be distracted during the service, we also have an awesome coloring sheet that Carrie Ronk put together. It's got pictures of the fiery furnace, which would be great. Uh, And so we'll get into it. Um, In this series that we've called um, Life in Exile, Life for Eternity, God's people um, were faithful for a season, but then eventually had been faithless so long that God said, hey, you guys are no longer going to be um, your own nation. You're actually be taken over by, by what at the time was an evil, wicked, pagan nation, but was also the, the world's greatest superpower at that time. And they're all brought into Babylon. And the, um, uh, the, the best and the brightest, youngest, most influential members of um, the nation of Israel were actually brought into the king's court to be trained by them, to have their allegiance given to them. And, and in that, there was, there was four men that we met um, who uh, remained faithful and undefiled even while engaging um, with this culture around them. And that was Daniel, who the book is named after. And then in the um, Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, And um, last week, King Nebuchadnezzar, right, kind of a a bit of a loose cannon, uh, kind of a bit of a a dictator, if you will. Um, He threatens what's called the Chaldeans, which were the, the, the um, uh, religious elite, the governmental elite, um, the spiritual elite, the, the, the cultural elites, and says, hey, if you don't tell me what my dream was, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to like murder all of you and, and your whole family. And out of that, we saw God's wisdom show up in these faithful men who trusted the Lord, and God gave them a vision of what his dream was and what it meant, and it was this statue that we talked about last week, that a head of gold and a chest of silver and a midsection of bronze and and legs of iron and and calves and toes of iron and clay. And and the big idea was that man's kingdoms, humanity's kingdoms, don't actually progress, but we actually regress. And they all have a beginning and they all have an end. And this image, like, was was so intense for uh, Nebuchadnezzar because what happened was this rock came in, destroyed the statue, our kingdoms, and out of that a giant mountain grew that encompassed the whole earth. And and that was representative of Jesus coming uh, uh, into human history and then God's kingdom growing and growing and growing and overshadowing and overpowering humanity's kingdom. And this was a message given to these exiles and, and to us. If you're, if you're a Christian, and maybe you're not, and so like the language doesn't quite, quite marry up for you, but if you're a Christian, there's this idea that we are um, citizens of heaven and we're not yet home. 
And so how we navigate the world around us matters in ways that are, that are both faithful, kind, compassionate, and with conviction. And so um, Nebuchadnezzar responds and he's like, oh my gosh, that was an amazing dream. Thank you for the vision of that. Your God has so much wisdom. And, and so you're thinking, all right, Nebuchadnezzar, he might be becoming a Christian. Or, or certainly like, like, like he's going to be very uh, favorable and he's, he probably believes in the First Amendment and there's religious protection for everybody in Babylon and, and what could go wrong, right? Chapter 3. Let's open our Bibles. Turn there. I've bro- it's a big chapter. I've broken this up into four sections starting with verses 1 through 7. I'll read them. We'll talk about them. Let's go. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Immediately after, he says, your God's good. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breast six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And a herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples and nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All right, here we are. So um, right after that statue of gold, silver, iron, kind of all that, now, whether it's a few years later or whether it's immediately after, is it known? But, but the author's intent is to go immediately from Nebuchadnezzar's confession that God is wise and all-knowing and he knows all history to, all right, how does he then respond to God's truth? He sets up a statue that's gold from head to toe. And he, he puts it out <clears throat> in, in a plain, um, a flat area away from mountains, away from rocks or stones that could come and crush it. And he does so in a little suburb, if you will, of Babylon. And so it's um, the cubits kind of deal. That means it's about 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. We're like, okay, that's, I mean, I think the water tower here in Marysville might be bigger, right? Um, in, in those days, the biggest statues were 12 to 18 feet. So this was an amazing accomplishment. Not to matter, uh, to mention, it's, it's like solid gold. I mean, there's a lot of worth and value that was put into it. And so Nebuchadnezzar has been given this vision of human history from God, and he decides, you know what? That's a great song, God. I bet I could sample that on my next track, and, and, and I could just remix it. And that's what he does. This, think about this statue like a song remix. Like if you grew up in the 60s or 70s, uh, in the 90s, man, we loved redoing songs from the 60s and 70s. And I'd play them for my parents and they'd be like, that's not the song. I know how that song goes. And they did not hit it. And so that's what he's doing. He's, he's making his own remix. And in this remix, 
rather than displaying what's true about God. He trades it for a narrative that's more convenient for him. See, he's been given this image that his kingdom's good. I mean, it's, it's golden, in fact. But it begins and it ends. And instead he goes, no, 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 no. My kingdom's not ending. My kingdom's going head to toe gold. He's saying, this is the great kingdom. This is the greatest hope for humanity. This is the great shining city on the hill. This is the great empire that will rule forever and ever and ever. And we're like, here in Marysville in 2022, none of us speak Babylonian, right? Apparently it doesn't last. But in the midst of this, the message is clear. His kingdom's the only one worth following. And when our God shows us our limits, we respond sometimes by just changing the narrative entirely. God, I don't like the fact that I'm finite. I don't like the fact that I have limits. I don't like that what I build or what I do or what I believe doesn't define every aspect of me and, and, and that I can't get the rest of the universe around me to bend to my will. So instead, I'm just going to change the narrative where I'm the author of my story. I'm going to change the narrative where I'm the captain of my soul. I'm going to change the narrative where what I do echoes into eternity in my own legacy or, or that this is all there is, so I better get mine now. See, we lift up visions and versions of our reality and our truth and ourselves. And what God's calling us to do is actually respond with a bit of humility. That image that Daniel and his friends were given wasn't just for Nebuchadnezzar to understand, but it was also for God's people who were in the midst of suffering, wondering, Babylon is so big. Babylon is so powerful. Babylon has so many followers on Instagram. Like, like how are we going to make it through this? And he's given God's people an image saying, don't worry, there's a bigger kingdom coming that's grander than any that we can construct. And so let's, let's get back to the narrative for a moment. That Nebuchadnezzar, he's gathered all these governmental officials together for this big dedication once the, the uh, a statue is made. And, and I want you to think about this ceremony um, as if it was like the opening ceremony to the Olympics. And so I don't remember if it was 2010, 12, 8, something like that, but, but if you remember the uh, Olympics the, in China for the first time, right, this big, massive stadium, and the, the opening ceremonies were, were phenomenal, and it was, it was China asserting, look at us as a world superpower, and, and one of the big images that rung out in my head at that time and that has endured through, like years later was the, the field filled with, what, like 100 drummers, right, all in tune, all in time, doing their thing, and it's, it, was, it was powerful, and it was rhythmic, and, and, and oh my gosh, look at the, look at the conformity, look, look at the discipline involved, and, and that's, that's what's happening here, only instead of every nation's champions coming in, instead of this being a United Nations of Babylon where everybody can kind of do their own thing, Instead, Babylon had conquered so many other nations that they're not bringing in the champions of the other nations to compete. They're bringing in those who they have already captured and overtaken to come before the God of Babylon, before King Nebuchadnezzar, to recognize your defeat, your surrender. This is your God. This is who's in charge now. 
And even when you think about that opening ceremony from, from China years ago, what started to come out after the Olympics, right? The news cycle's kind of weird like that, right? After we were all excited about it was like how much the government had like, you know, harmed the families or threatened the families of those drummers. If you get anything wrong, like you better be in lockstep. See, when you start with a pluralistic society, it moves pretty quickly from universal tolerance to absolute compulsory our way or the highway. Because when you have many gods, you really have no god. And so in the case of Babylon and, and other times, government becomes the god. And says, hey, you're going to bow down no matter what we say. You're going to pledge your allegiance no matter what we say. And what's interesting, if you've been with us in this series, and you can catch up online if you want to, in chapter one, Babylon's assimilation plan for all the people coming in was actually like, come eat at our table, come learn at our schools, come be in the king's court. And, and they made Babylon attractive. And then when that ran its course, anybody that was left, well, no, now it's time, now it's time for you to, to bow or burn. Now it's time for you to comply with the mandate or you're losing your job. And so it's, it's rough because Nebuchadnezzar was given this vision about who God is and he exchanged it for a vision of his own glory. And I think what, there's a word therefore in verse six or seven that's really important because after it lays out the threat, it says, well, then everybody responded with okay. I mean, think for a second, like how would you respond? Hey, just, just come, come out to the plane where the statue's at. I don't want to. Kind of not my deal. I'm not a big plane statue guy. Well, that's cool. You're burning. Oh, yeah, no, that's cool. I can be there by two. Maybe a little traffic. Might be taking a little more time. No, the, the, when government and Babylon is using their authority to harm, it's amazing what type of compliance they get. And so... This isn't, you know, the bumper stickers we used to, to see driving around, right? Especially here in the Northwest. Remember the coexist bumper stickers? Right, where like the C was like a crescent for like Islam and like the, the T was a cross and there's like a star date. Like, hey, let's just coexist. No, this, these bumper stickers say bow or burn. Those are your options, bow or burn. And so every knee and every, every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Nebuchadnezzar is Lord, except for a few. We'll see that here in section two, verses eight through 18. Eight through 18 says this. Therefore, at the time that certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews, <clears throat> they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the tragon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. The certain Jews who you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They don't serve you or your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought <clears throat> So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? 
doesn't even wait for the answer. Now, if you're ready, when you, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden images that you have set up. So Nebuchadnezzar begins, you know, with the statue. The declaration goes out. Apparently not everybody um, bowed down. And now we're into a place of cultural purging, right? The other Chaldeans who surprisingly, it says with, not surprisingly, it says with malicious intent, they out who they call the Jews, the people who, who are from Israel. And not all of them, just specifically the ones who didn't bow down. And it says they do so maliciously because, hey, maybe the Chaldeans aren't really true believers in this new statue out in the plain. Maybe they were like, I remember when there was plans for a Costco in that field. And now all of a sudden, there's a statue and you're telling me it's God? But they recognize an opportunity. The political and governmental power can be used to get rid of their enemies. And in fact, going back to chapter one, right? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, they all graduate top of their class from the Chaldean school, right? And so these guys probably had a bit of jealousy. These Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they actually are like governors over some territory. Maybe these guys are only on the city council. And they're like, I want to be governor. Well, the easiest way to do that, right? Get rid of your political opponents. And so they come to the king, and, and, and they basically say, like, hey, don't, don't you understand? These, these Jewish men, see, they're not Babylonian. They're Jewish. They're outsiders. They're from another nation. They're, they're going to ruin our culture. They're a threat to our democracy. They're not patriotic enough. They're not really Babylonians in the first place. Do they even speak our language? They're for sure taking our jobs. And so the king is like, wait, wait, hold the phone. Are you telling me they're not bowing to my statue? See, they just go right for the vanity. Just right for the king's vanity. They're not bowing to my statue. And it says he gets angry. It says he gets really, really upset. You know, your gods, your image, they're not bowing down to. And what's interesting is that apparently their lack of compliance wasn't even that conspicuous because the king didn't even see it. Maybe they were like, you know what? This whole bowing thing's happening. If I just kind of stand on the end, maybe nobody will notice. We'll just kind of quietly go about our lives. Can you just, just let me do my thing? I know Babylon's got all this stuff going on right now. I just want to take care of my family. I just want to serve in my church. I just want to coach the little league. Like, I just want to kind of do my thing. And that's fine until Babylon ups the temperature and the culture gets more and more ruthless and says, no, we're moving away from tolerance to compliance. And so 
these men find themselves in a place where they literally are told to worship, like he uses the word worship over and over, worship that which is not a god, right? That gold was in a mountain at some point. It was melted down. Somebody, you know, crafted it. Was that what they do? Yeah, yeah, right, welded it, I don't know, right? Somebody crafted it. They made it. It was made with human hands. And they're like, we're not going to worship that which is not a god like it's the god. That's a, a definition of what we call idolatry. We don't use that a lot in popular culture, but, but in the church and Christianity, idolatry is worshiping anything. That could be your kids, your marriage. That could be whether the electricity works properly. Uh, anything um, that, is, uh, that you're like, I just want it to be perfect and right. Anything that you treat in your heart and your actions and affections like God that isn't God. You even get this. And they're like, no, no, we, we can't do that. We're not going to do that. And so what happens is we've seen already in this text that there's this constant drumbeat over and over of these repetitive lists, right? You've already heard them. The pipe, the tragon, the, the bagpipe. I'm like, bagpipes? I would probably worship just about anything if somebody's rocking some bagpipes, right? right you start marching, you're like, yeah. I mean, I'm not Scottish, but I could be, right? Like, the music's going, the music's going. Move with the music. Don't you see the flow of popular culture? This is the way it's going. And there's, there's a reason the author has put in all of those repetitious lists. It's to, it's to tell the people of God, it's to tell us and those who are in exile, that sometimes the flow of culture and the drumbeat of Babylon is so repetitive and overpowering that it's just there to wear you down. I want to be faithful, but gosh, it's just another thing over and over and over. It's unrelenting. So I want you to ask yourself, what's the drumbeat in your head that will not stop? What is it that overpowers you in how you see the world and either paralyzes you from positive action or propels you towards things that are not godly? That's Babylon pounding in your head. Don't follow the Lord, follow us. Don't follow the Lord, follow us. Don't follow the Lord, follow us. My wife and I talked about this for a minute this week. And, and I think my, my drumbeat is fear. Just a drumbeat of fear. What's going to happen? How are people going to respond? What's going to happen in this conversation? What's going to happen with this issue? Over and over, and it, and it keeps sometimes from pressing in and being courageous where we're called to be faithful. What's that drumbeat for you? What are you bowing down to or giving yourself over to? In this case, the king has set up a false image and he's content to have everybody else around him bow down to his version of reality. Right? The king has a narrative for how he sees the world. And he's like, I want everyone to follow that. But when it gets challenged and he's not completely affirmed, he responds with outrage. See, the thing with idols, those that are not God, that which is not God, is they don't stand up to scrutiny. And they really, really don't like it if you challenge them. And so these guys have challenged the king, and his response isn't like, okay, well, tell me more about your God. Or how can we work this out? Or like, like what's a compromise that can work? Or, you know, I, I mean, do you understand like, what, like, like why I want to bow down to this one over here? Like, let's just, he's like, no, 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 no. 
if you can comply, you can stay on the team. If not, it's not like, hey, go do your own thing, and I'll just let you coexist. It's Again, it's bow or burn. And I believe that, I don't know if this is a unique moment in human history, but I believe our current moment in human history is we are living in a cultural society full of little Nebuchadnezzars. That every one of us, in some way, shape, or form, has built up an image of what our identity is, of what our truth is, of, of what reality is, and our sense of self is outpacing our actual, who, who we actually out are. And so we get into our truth and our reality and our emotions or our thoughts or our feelings end up defining what we believe reality is. And, and that can go for a little while until my reality clashes with your reality. And now, you better affirm my version of reality, my version of the truth, my version of how I see or identify myself with, or you will suffer wrath from me. You'll be cut off individually, or you'll be shunned culturally. We all have a little bit of Nebuchadnezzar in us. And how we respond to one another, right, when there's those moments of wrath, those moments where we're like, oh my gosh, I just want to go along to, to get along, is because we deeply desire to be loved and accepted. I want to be clear. It's okay to desire to be loved and accepted. You're actually made to be loved and accepted. God has created you a certain way, designed you a certain way, with a purpose, with meaning. He knows you. He knows every hair on your head, or if you don't have any. Either way, he knows. And so, you're made for a purpose. And in that, we'd rather suffer by complying than suffer by being labeled an outsider. We want to be liked, we want to avoid conflict, or fear of being labeled and outed more than we want to be courageous with what is true. And so when cultural narratives keep moving on and on, the drum gets louder and louder, and you're like, I don't know if, I've, I, don't know if I can go there. I don't know if I believe that. Or I don't, I don't know if, like, well, it sounds like maybe scientifically that's proven not to be true. Or like, wait, I thought we all agreed that this is how reality worked, and now we're over here, and that's not saying we don't change and reform, but you're like, I, I can't go there anymore. We've lost a sense of shared reality, even, British philosopher G.K. Chesterton says it this way. We shall soon be in a world in which a man may be howled down for saying that two and two make four. In which furious party cries will be raised against anybody who says the cows have horns. In which people will persecute the heresy of calling a triangle a three-sided figure and hang a man for maddening a mob with the news that grass is green. See, when the drumbeat gets so loud, the oppression can get so thick that we start to forget what's true. And so the spotlight is on these men. It's your turn. Are you going to bow? Are you going to serve? What are you going to do? And they're, this, like, this is the bowing line. And all of us get confronted with these lines at different points. And, and what happens when we, when we get confronted with the line of, are you going to bow or are you going to remain faithful and courageous? We respond, I think, in one of two ways. In one way, we're like, I think we minimize what bowing lines really are. 
we're like, well, that's not the real line. I mean, they're just asking for a little bit of this. They're just telling me to talk like this. They're just telling me to respond this way. They're just telling me to not say this anymore. You know, I'll, I'll just wait till they actually tear down the water tower and put up a statue and call it God. That's my line. I, I got the Daniel line. I'm just trying to be faithful. Because if I, if I, if I you know, take a stand courageously, there might be non-Christians that are mad at me. There might be Babylonians who are bowing down, who are like, why aren't you bowing down? Love your neighbor and bow down. We're all doing it. And so, the other way we respond is everything is a bowing line. Every change in culture, everything we just don't personally like, every inconvenience, every little shift in maybe our individual liberty or, or change in our collective responsibility, that's a bowing line, I better fight. That's a bowing line, I better fight. That's a bowing line, I better fight. And, and sure enough, at certain points, everyone around you is like, I don't, could you, could you just maybe delete your account for a while? Or like, I don't know if I want to have dinner with you anymore. Or like, right, we're no longer engaged at all with the culture. We've drawn our lines too, too far. Um, last fall, last uh, spring rather, um, Lake Stevens School District um, uh, uh, did our family a very great offense. And what they did was they moved up the week for the start of school up one week. And I did not like that because I like school to end after Labor Day. And we, my wife and I had already booked um, a couple nights at a hotel that we couldn't refund. And now we're gone on the first day of school. <laughs> we're great parents, thanks, we know. Um, and so I, I was like, I was kind of upset about it. They changed the dates. And my wife's like, we should go to a school board meeting. And I was like, no, we are not going to a school board meeting or complaining about the date. Because when there's a real line, and I have to say, there was a boy in my daughter's locker room and that's not okay. They're going to be like, yeah, but you didn't like when the school calendar was. See, we need to be wise on when we're going to bow or what an actual bowing line is. The first way of never thinking there's a line is unfaithful. The second way of thinking everything is a line is ineffective for our mission. See, there are real moments that should stand. There are real moments one of them is famously here. We have an image of it. Um, in 1936, a, uh, a ship was being launched in Germany. So this is four years before World War II. And you can maybe see the guy circled there, right? Uh, his name is August Landmeister. And while everybody else is giving, I'm not going to do it because if there's a video, they'll take a picture of it and be like, look. Um, uh, um, everybody else is giving the little salute, okay? Um, and, uh, and he's like, no, I'm good. And you're like, did he just forget? Maybe he's blind. No, no. He was engaged to a woman named Irma who was Jewish. He says, I, I can't go the way this society's going. They've collectively gone insane, and I will not pay homage to what Babylon is doing right now. And all of us see this meme, and we think, I'm going to be that guy. And I think the last two years have taught us, none of us are really that guy. In fact, actually, I think if we really read the story, we wouldn't want to be that guy. And the reason we wouldn't want to be that guy is because August Landmeister, um, got thrown in prison for not doing that. He then was drafted into a prisoner uh, army that the Nazis sent out to the front line, and he was killed. His wife, or fiance, Irma, was sent to a concentration camp where she died. And so we're like, well, I don't, I mean, if bowing means that, I don't want to suffer. So I'm just going to keep navigating it. 
know, we like stories like Rosa Parks, right? Right, Rosa Parks, you know, she didn't stand, she, she sat. And she said, the, the injustice that's happening in our country around treating people whose skin might be of a different color as if they're a different, like, actual race of, of individuals, that, that's crazy town. No, we're all have a shared humanity. All of us are made in the image and likeness of God and worthy of dignity and respect. And, and what drove Rosa to that place of courage is this. She, she has this quote in her book, Quiet Strength. She says, every day before supper and before we went to services on Sunday, my grandmother would read the Bible to me and my grandfather would pray. We even had devotions before going to pick cotton in the fields. Prayer and Bible, she recalls. Prayer and Bible, she recalls, became part of my everyday thoughts and beliefs. I learned to put my trust in God and seek him as my strength. Another picture of courage. That's awesome. That's awesome. So what are the, so what are the lines? What, what, what are the lines? What, what are the lines that we're not going to bow down to? It just feels like we're given a line almost every day. So I'll say this. In the beginning, God created men and women in his image, worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. He made them different and unique. He created marriage as an institution for men and women to flourish to, for their relationship and also for procreation. He has designed human sexuality to be a certain way. We believe that God is the author of life, beginning at conception all the way through to our last days. So that means that Mercy Fellowship, we're gonna, we're gonna teach we're going to encourage, we're going to, to hold up God's beautiful design around sexuality and identity and marriage and life, and we're going to advocate for those things, and we're going to celebrate when culture moves in directions that affirm life and God's design, and we're going to be people who are compassionate to anyone and everyone who comes into this place and space, whether it's in this room or at our tables or out in coffee shops or whoever we engage with, because everyone's worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. And with compassion also comes conviction that no matter how loud the drums get, no matter how angry the officials and the culture gets, or how hot the furnace burns, we will not bow to Babylon's version of these things when we have a God who's declared what's true and right around those issues. This isn't the sermon where we're going to break that down in great detail, but my hope is over the, over the winter or perhaps into the spring that we, we begin to maybe have some seminars as a church to try to address these individual issues of, of life and gender and sexuality uh, and, and all those different things because, because that's a practical and functional theology about how do we as Christians whose citizenship is in heaven but also live as Americans engage with the culture around us being both compassionate and having conviction. That's our line. Now, I'm not saying that's a line where you have to leave or, or not stay or whatever. I'm just letting you know what we believe God, God's word teaches about these things. And so we get to, we get to verse 15, and we've got we to keep things going. We get to verse 15, and, and um, Nebuchadnezzar's like, I know I'm in charge. 
I know I got the power. I know I got the furnace. And so who is a God who can deliver you out of my hand? And, and that, that's a challenging response because he's challenging these three men on who their God actually is. And if there's any God bigger than Nebuchadnezzar, and I love the guy's response, it's golden. They're like, we don't have to answer you, but we will. Our God is, they said, able. We serve a God that's different than you, and he is able to deliver you out of our hands. He is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace of wrath. Our God can do this. And this is an amazing pronouncement. We see your strength. We see your power. There are three of us. There are millions of Babylonians banging the drum and the bagpipe and all that stuff. Everyone's bowing down. We see how powerful you are. But we believe our God is more powerful than that. And that he is able to deliver us. That we, like these guys saw and heard about the same image that Daniel uh, uh, had in chapter 2 about the kingdoms. And so they look at the statue and they know it's a perversion of what's true. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom will end. And so they're like, we know this ends with Jesus in a big mountain. So do whatever you want. Our God is greater, and he's greater than you. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, Peter and the apostles answer being challenged by people telling them to stop talking about Jesus as the resurrected God, Jesus as the Savior King, and they respond and they say, we must obey God rather than men. That's what these men are doing here as well. I want you to know, the Christians, we, we worship a God who's able. We worship a God who is good, and these guys go a step further because they say, yeah, he's able to save, but if not, so you know, I want the God to save. But if he doesn't, we're still not gonna bow down to your false gods. We're still not gonna pretend that your God is God. They are what we said we wanna be this year. They're resolved. They're resolved that not if God saves them, but they're confident knowing that he's able. They're sharing, I believe, in the heart of Jesus who the night before um, he uh, was crucified is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus says, Father, if it's your will, take this cup of wrath. Take the cross from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done alone. They're displaying a, what I, I want to call a confident submission to God, that it's not the, 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 the quality of their faith, it's not the quantity of their faith. I mean, these guys, I mean, it's not that they're so amazing, but they believe and know that God is amazing. It comes down to the object of their faith. That they trust in a God who's a creator and they will not bow down to the God that you have created. And so, if they bow down, they know that they're preaching something false to Nebuchadnezzar about who God is and who Nebuchadnezzar is. And so Nebuchadnezzar responds, okay, fire it is. Let's move on to part three, verses 19 through 25, moving on. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here are the furnace heated seven times more than it usually is heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. 
because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound in the fiery furnace. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Do we not cast three men bound in the fire? They answered and said, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. And they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So Nebuchadnezzar hears their response. His anger is kindled so much, right? He has lost control of his emotions. He's ruled by his emotions. It says his face is contorted. He's angry. He's mad. He says, you know what? The furnace ain't enough. Let's crank that furnace up to 11, right? He's got all the whole grill going. This is going to be hot, hot, hot. I want everyone to see what's going to happen when you don't obey Babylon. And he takes these men, and they're bound up by soldiers, right? They're like in these straight jacket deals, uh, and they're led into the furnace. Uh, and what's amazing about this is you actually see that those who blindly follow Babylon are the ones that get burned. The soldiers, it says, that led them in died in the fire. Now, how crazy is that, right? Okay, the fire's burning, right? Fires emanate, right? And they're leading the guys in, and they're like, you know, it's the last minute, maybe we'll throw them in. No, it got hot. Like, they could have probably ran away, or they could have let go of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And instead, they just keep marching into the fire until they just go full Indiana Jones in the temple of, or um, uh, uh, whatever the one, Ark, the, the Ark one, where they all melt, right? Melty face. If you haven't seen it, it's terrifying. Gave me nightmares for years. If your kids are under 12, don't let them see it for a while unless you want to be woken up in the middle of the night. But this is what happens. You blindly follow Babylon thinking that's what's faithful and you get burned. Meanwhile, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the fiery furnace, and it's in this furnace where they're met by God. Now, theologians debate whether this was an angel that showed up or whether it's Jesus. Um, my belief is that it's, it's Jesus. Um, Colossians 1.13 says he's the image of the invisible God. Either way, whether it was an angel or Jesus, and, and like I said, I, I believe personally it's Jesus. God shows up in the furnace. God shows up to care for them. God shows up with presence to be them. And what is amazing uh, about this is that, well, the guys had already died and been burned. That's letting you know the fire's real and the danger's real. So don't think for a second like, hey, this trial's really not that intense. Or Babylon, eh, it's not so bad. Have you seen Persia? Oh, you're about to. They come in chapter six. Okay. They're like, no, no. God could have saved them any way he wanted. God could have torn down the statue. God could have killed Nebuchadnezzar. God could have zapped these three guys and brought them back to Israel and helped them build a new great nation right away. There are like so many ways that God could have saved these men. He could have turned down the heat on the fire, just made it like a nice, like a sauna maybe, something pleasant, right? Just kind of sweat it out a bit. Maybe a nice steam room. But instead, he doesn't change the circumstances. He doesn't change the trial. He doesn't change the temperature of the fire. He just promises, I'll be with you in the fire. 
we have a God who's able to save. And our God doesn't always promise that there won't be trials, but he absolutely promises that he's with us always to the end of the age. That means he's with us, he's with me, he's with you in whatever fiery trials you're facing. Our God is present and able to save. Isaiah 48.10 says, Behold, I've refined you, not as silver, but I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. See, while they're in the fire, what has happened is that which bound them has been burned away. But what has remained was their clothes, their hair, kind of all that stuff. They were unsinged. But the things that bound them to obey Babylon were burned away. See, we have, we have a God who sets us free that sometimes affliction and adversity are actually there to burn away that which is binding you. Because God's desire for you is freedom. Even in the midst of fire. It says they're walking around in the midst of fire. How often are we in trial and adversity and we just feel like, I'm just getting burned. Now it doesn't say they didn't sweat. But it does say they didn't get burned or charred. And so I'm in it. I'm in the adversity. And I feel like I'm not free. And God's saying, no, even in trials and adversity, there's still opportunities for freedom when we dwell with Jesus who sets us free. The fire is hot. These men are not panicking. It says they're not even hurt. The fire is hot, but it doesn't last forever. The fire will not last forever. All right, guys, last verses as we close it out. What happens? 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors, gathered together and saw that the fire had no power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their head was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He should have stopped there, but he keeps going. And set aside the king's, sorry, um, and sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god of their own god. That's all pretty good stuff. Then he says this, verse 29. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. Their house is laid in ruins, for there's no other god who's able to rescue this way. Then he promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Okay. So what's amazing is we, we began this chapter with this gathering of leaders all coming together to compulsorily worship this towering statue that Nebuchadnezzar had made. And if you didn't, you burned. If you didn't, you are going to suffer. What's changed and how this applies to what we call the Christian gospel is instead of you better come and turn or burn, instead they say, come and see the God who saves. Come and see the God who dwells with his people in adversity. Come and see the God who sustains his people through fiery trials. They, they're like, I want to see this. 
If you're a Christian, God has done something in your life and in your heart that I hope is contagious. That I hope doesn't lead you to go around and, hey, by the way, I'm saved, so I'm not going to hell, I'm going to heaven. You, on the other hand, <laughs> I hope it's, let's come and magnify the Lord together. Let me tell you what God has done in my life. Let me tell you the ways Jesus has walked with me through fire. Let me tell you the ways that, that I have been saved and will be saved by Jesus. That I was destined for a furnace that I actually deserved because of my sin. But God in his mercy actually showed up. That God in his mercy actually showed up and dwelt with his people. That our God Jesus Christ left the throne room of heaven to enter the fiery furnace of life here on earth to dwell with his people and went to the cross, not unharmed, not with no hair on his head undisturbed, but with a crown of thorns on his head. That where Nebuchadnezzar said they, they willingly offered up their bodies faithfully to God. That, that in that regard, they're a small shadow of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who willingly offered up his body on the cross. And that is what we remember when we take communion. That Jesus' body was broken when we take the bread. That his blood was shed for us when we dip it into the cup. That we remember because of Jesus' work in our place because Jesus went through the fire of adversity because Jesus was called out of the tomb to new life we we can endure trials we have been given Jesus perfect obedience in our place you don't have to be a Shadrach, Meshach or Abednego you can trust that Jesus has navigated Babylon perfectly for you. And out of that, yeah, we can, we can and should live lives of response that are, are faithful and courageous, yes. But don't leave here today saying, I just need to be one of those three guys. Be here today celebrating the God that shows up in our furnaces. The God who saves us and his name is Jesus. See, we just simply believe that our call as Christians is not to set up Sharia law where every other God and religion is called out like Nebuchadnezzar wants, right? It's just like yeah, all the other, yeah, if you, you know, that's not religious liberty. No, we have enough faith in our God. We have a Holy Spirit that moves in people's hearts and lives, sometimes in an instant, sometimes over a lifetime. But we believe our God is good and our God saves. So we can have a humble gospel confidence we have a God who walks with us in our furnaces, who's able to save. And even when things are difficult, we can still rest when we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.